I own myself. Nobody else owns me, and therefore nobody else has a right to dictate to me you know, how safe I have to be out in my car. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Lions, to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And I've got another one coming for you in today's episode, the 272nd episode of this program, which means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 272. And I know many of you out there are facing major healthcare decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is an automobile expert who has authored two books, Automotive Atrocities and Road Hogs. He doesn't just write about cars, but also politics from a libertarian perspective as well. Over at his website, epautos.com, I am pleased to welcome Mr. Eric Peters. Eric, are you ready to roar? When my teeth are better, I'll try and do it better. But yes, I am. <laughs> I, I never heard a lion uh, look in the mirror and check his teeth out before unleashing the roar. <laughs> oh, I'm a I'm a toothless lion today because I had a cap done, and so oh, no. um, I've got a, I, yeah, I've got a temporary. My gums are killing me, so pardon me if 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 I'm somewhat mush mouthed. That's why. Well, you, you sound great to me, and you know what? Roaring it's not about it's not about if your teeth work or if your mouth can get the sound out the right way. It's about the spirit, and I'm pretty sure you got that spirit yeah. either way. <laughs> I think so. Great, Eric. Well, we'll we'll get into your ideas about politics and and how you okay. became a libertarian in a little bit. But I I kind of want to start off first how you became uh, how you took interest in the subject that you're so passionate about, and that is uh, cars. Well, like a lot of guys, I'm a Gen X guy, so uh, a lot of guys my age grew up messing with cars uh, when we were little, and uh, that just sort of grew and developed. And as I got into the workforce and became a journalist and started working at newspapers. I got the opportunity to cover local car shows and write about the industry, and apparently I did an okay job at it because they asked me to do more. One thing led to another, and I just kind of segued into full-time. And so I've been doing that for, gosh, more than 20 years now. So I've been able to combine my passion, which is cars and motorcycles, and also my, my living, which is something that I'm very grateful for being able to do. How exactly were you able to do that? Because I know there are so many people out there that, and this applies very broadly in many areas, but many people out there that have, have passions, have things that are hobbies that they spend so much time on, but then they go over to their 40-hour-a-week job that has nothing to do with that and they're bored out of their minds. So how were you able to get to that point where you were able to you know, start writing about cars and work your way into the point where you could actually make a living off your passion? Well, part of it you know, had to have been timing. I'm not going to take all the credit for it. I got into it in the 90s and back then. There were probably it was analogous to the NFL. There there were a few hundred slots in the entire country for people who were actually making money writing about cars or covering the car industry. And at that time, I was on the editorial page staff at the Washington Times in in Washington, and uh, I was able to to get into it from uh, you know a, a leverage it from a position of relative strength as, as somebody who worked for a fairly significant uh, news outlet. And you know today uh, everything's kind of fractured and diversified, and they're thousands of people blogging. So I was able to kind of build up my, my name recognition and my career and everything before all of that. So 
uh, I often fall down on my knees and thank God I'm not a millennial. So you were blogging before blogging was cool. I guess so. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you know, it was a combination of hard work and, and luck. I'm not going to deny the, the luck being a big factor in it. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about is your book here, Automotive Atrocities, Cars We Love yeah. to Hate. I, I just love that title. So what's that book all about and what inspired you to write it? Well, it's about the cars that, that nobody makes anymore, meaning just crap cars, junkers, cars that were, were atrocities from the factory that were poorly designed and poorly built. There's no such animal today. Uh, kids coming up today have no idea uh, what it was like to go to a new car showroom and find something like a, a Yugo that literally would fall apart in your hands, brand new, that would begin to burn oil copiously after 10,000 miles. That was a death trap that had you know profound structural and design flaws that could get you killed. There's just no such thing anymore, and and some of them were just outright hilarious. One of the um, the trends today that I I often uh, complain about is the homogenization of of car design that's due to a great extent because of the government, the government laying down all these mandates about what cars have got to have, and that kind of sets up a template that everybody's got to fit their cars into. But 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, manufacturers could really just kind of do what they wanted, and, and that resulted in some really oddball creations, like the Pacer, for example, uh, and the big fins and the cars of the 60s and all of that, when there really was a big difference between one model and another car company's model. And uh, I look back on that with nostalgia. That was fun and interesting and entertaining. That's really interesting that you point out that cars today are a lot more homogenous in their design because mm-hmm. I'm actually, as as we talked about when we set up the interview, I'm kind of in the market for a new vehicle right now. I've been out test driving some cars and, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at cars in the same area, the same class. And I think the hardest part about my decision now is is that so many of the cars feel the same. You know, the, I'm, I'm getting into uh, Hyundais and, and Toyotas and Nissans and Hondas uh, that are all in the same general area. And I, I like different things about how they ride and things like that. There are there are minor differences, but in many ways, I kind of feel like I'm just getting into the same car that has a different name on it. Well, you kind of are. Uh, you know, give you one very specific example. Almost all of the engines that you'll find under any any car today, regardless of the brand, are fundamentally the same layout. There are a handful of exceptions. Subaru still sells, for example, the horizontally opposed boxer engine, but you won't find an air-cooled engine like you'd find in an old Volkswagen Beetle. They've had to make them common and similar, and in part, again, because of the government mandates, particularly having to do with emissions control, uh, that eliminated air-cooled engines. You know, that's the reason why both Volkswagen and Porsche went away from their air-cooled designs. Uh, they weren't able to get those cars through the smog test, so they had to go to water cooling. And uh, you know, just across the spectrum, in order to make these cars legal for sale, they have to make them increasingly the same. And that's why when you go out there and look at them, it's kind of hard to tell one from another. You look at the badge and the grill, and that's basically the big difference between one car and another these days. So it really seems like your your focus on the auto industry has kind of made you privy, maybe more so than the average man on the street, of how government interventions can really influence an industry. Uh, I'm kind of curious, how, how much did your interest in cars and seeing this stuff kind of unfold influence your political beliefs? How connected is your love of cars and your passion for the ideas of liberty? Well, part of it, let's see, it's a big question, so let's kind of break That's it down a little bit. That's what we're here for, bit. the big ones. Yeah. yeah, for me, cars were always about, you know, freedom. Uh, if you can remember what it was like to be a teenager, one of those one of the big moments in a teenager's life is when you get your driver's license and you start to drive. You've got freedom of action. You know, you can get away from your parents. You can go out with your friends. You can do what you want to do. You can go where you want to go on your own timetable. Uh, that was one of the things that greatly appealed to me about cars. Uh, I also liked the idea that you could work on this thing. It was just an interesting machine. You could take it apart. You could figure out how it worked. You could put it back together. And you, as a kid, 
you could develop the sense of mastery and competence that you understood something. Today, on the other hand, cars have become very nanny-ish, again, because of the government and the government decreeing all of these safety mandates uh, that every car company has to comply with. So they're a lot less fun. Uh, they're a lot less approachable, too, because of all the technology that, that is necessary to uh, implement all these safety things that they put into cars. And so they're a lot less interesting to today's kids. And I think that's one of the big reasons why not just the millennials, but the generation behind them have kind of fallen out of love with cars and don't really care about them anymore. They're, you know, they're more interested in video games than they are in cars. And probably, in a way, it's because the car has become a kind of a video game, just a really forbiddingly expensive one. And one with uh, some serious consequences if if you mess up, I guess, out there on the road. Well, not as much as it used to be, though. You know, in a way, it's ironic. You know, today's cars are allegedly safer because of all of the, in my opinion, idiot proofing that they put into these things uh, to prevent people uh, from bearing the consequences of not being attentive, of not uh, allowing enough of a following distance between the car in front of them, uh, ABS braking and so on. Uh, whereas in the past, you had to really be aware of your driving and you had to pay attention to the road, and that necessarily made you a better driver. When I grew up, and, and most people my age, and certainly people in the generations that came before, generally they learned to drive on a stick shift, in a stick shift car. And that also tended to make you a better driver because you had to learn how to you know, move your legs and move your arms and at the same time pay attention to the road. Today, almost all cars have automatics. Manuals are very hard to find in cars today. And you get in the car and you push the button, you turn it on and you go. And, it, and it's deceptively easy to drive. Uh, you can whip down the road at 80 or 90 miles an hour in any modern car. Uh, and it feels like nothing. I have an old muscle car from the 70s. You take my old muscle car out and at 60 or 70, you're very aware of the speed that you're going. That's a really interesting perspective. I never, I never really thought about it that way, that you know, when you install all these features, and many of them may help people, but at the same time, we have to look at the other side of that, that when you're training people to be you know, not really thinking about the road and thinking about driving because they're relying on their vehicle to do all this stuff. They're relying on their vehicle to think for them. And I think, you know, obviously we're seeing uh, a lot of news about self-driving cars and that kind of thing. We're at a point soon where people are literally not going to think about the road at all because they're just going to get in their car and, and, and press a button and, you know, I guess it's going to take them off. <laughs> There's this whole kerfuffle right now with the, with the self-driving cars. You know, on the one hand, the sell, the idea is, okay, you're going to get in your self-driving car uh, and the car is going to take you where you want to go, and you're not going to have to pay attention to anything. But then at the same time, you're supposed to intervene when the car uh, has a hiccup and doesn't notice that uh, somebody just turned left in front of you. It's a catch-22. You, you're either the driver or you're not, I think. You either have to be the person who's responsible for controlling the car or not. I don't see how there's, there's a middle ground there. A person who is using this technology to not pay attention can't be expected to pay attention. Does, does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I can almost analogize it in a way to uh, a trend that we've seen in sports over the years where, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you'll, you'll watch clips of football and they're wearing those little leather helmets and, and you, mm -hmm. you know, then it's people are just tackling each other and what have you. But you, everyone has to be cognizant of that fact because you can't bang your heads together if you have nothing protecting them. And now fast forward to today, everyone's got these fancy helmets. They're doing all these studies on new helmets they can, they can build for these players to prevent concussions. But what these helmets do is they, they let people give the idea that, oh, it's okay. We can just ram our heads into each other now because we've got these helmets. Sure. Or you can look at the same thing in boxing. I mean, you got these big gloves on. Yeah, why not just wail on each other? It's not going to hurt your hands. Uh, maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but I, I mean, I kind of do see some similarities there that when you add all these supposed safety features, it can actually cause uh, more reckless behavior.
Yeah, and there's also, with these cars that drive themselves, there's this presumption uh, that I find remarkable that uh, technology is infallible. You know, the argument is, well, we can't trust people to drive cars because people err, they make mistakes, they don't pay attention, you know, they do stupid things. Well, technology fails too. Machines fail. Computers, think about, you know, your computer that sits on your desk. How often does it develop a bug? Probably fairly often. And it's in your house. It's sitting on your desk. It's not being jostled around in a car. It's not subjected to extremes of heat and cold. And it's not moving. You know, uh, it's one thing to make uh, an autonomous car that operates pretty well as a demonstration project, call a press conference, have the media come out, people get in it and try it and drive it around. Well, what happens when it's got 80 or 90,000 miles on it and it's been on the road for four or five years? You know, it's going to, something's going to go wrong. And the problem is when something does go wrong, if the driver has been conditioned and told, hey, you don't have to be responsible for anything. You can, you know, you can watch a video, you can take a nap, you can work on your laptop, you can text, whatever it is that you feel like doing. And then something goes wrong. Well, you know, the results of that are not going to be good. Sure, especially if we do get to that point where, you know, like you said, someone could be on their laptop sending an email when suddenly a car juts out and they have to take control of the vehicle. Well, you probably aren't going to have the response time if you are 100% distracted and in no way focused on the road. It almost seems like if we're going to have these self-driving cars, it needs to be in a a totally separate road system, a, a system where there are no human driving cars. And even that, I'm sure, has many potential problems. Well, I think so, too, and that's where you get into the, the political and philosophical stuff. I, you know, I've been accused of being a Luddite, and I'm not. Uh, I'm all for technology. What I'm opposed to is forcing it. And what I worry about with this autonomous driving stuff uh, is that they're going to decide that, well, you know, in order for this to work, everybody's got to have it. And that means that you can't drive a car that does not have uh, autonomous driving technology. You have to turn in uh, your pre-autonomous driving car. Um, I can see that happening, and that, that very much concerns me because, you know, it's, they call them self-driving, but that's kind of a misnomer. Somebody's going to be driving the car, just not you. It's going to be the person who controls the programming, which more than likely is going to be somebody in the government, and that makes my flesh crawl. I don't like that at all. Now, that, that's that's a scary one indeed, especially for libertarians like us to, to think. So how much does the government actually affect the programming? I never really thought of it that way. Uh, when it comes to these self-driving cars, are they directing you know exactly how some of these the software needs to be written or exactly what it needs to do? What exactly is, is the role? Well, they're the hashing it out. They're hashing it out, but they will. It, that's how it will ultimately be determined. You know, the, the manufacturers, that is the car companies, uh, aren't going to on their own determine the programming. They're going to do it according to what... DOT and NHTSA decree. So, you know, people have been, have, in my opinion, been bamboozled into thinking, well, this is going to be great. We're going to live in a Jetsons-like world where we'll be whizzing along at 100 miles an hour and we'll get to work so much faster. I don't think so. Uh, I think that it will be uh, determined by the least common denominator. And if you can imagine a world in which uh, your vehicle operates precisely in accordance with the law, all the underposted speed limits, think about that and all the granny-ish preemptive slowing down and braking for no reason, waiting pointlessly at lights uh, rather than making a safe turn, and so on. I think that's the kind of world that we're headed toward. Uh, I think your self-driving car is going to be like going for a ride in a Greyhound bus, and we all know how enjoyable that, that is. Oh, God, that is that is a tough sell because <laughs> that's about the last method of transport I want to take at this point in my life. I mean, think about anything that the government has its hand in, anything that the government controls. Is it generally more efficient? Is it generally more pleasant or less? Yeah, that's an easy one. I'm going to go less. Yeah. 
Amazing. Hey, going back to the Yugo and, and what, like what you mentioned before about how mm-hmm. they used to put out just these, these awful cars. Sometimes they'd make it to market. And I think there's a lot of people that on the, uh, the progressive side, the more pro-government side of things that would say, well, you see, that's why we need the government to be out there yeah. with these standards, because otherwise they're going to put out these death traps and people are just going to be dying all over the mm-hmm. road. So, I mean, what you, you talked about the Yugo yourself, and maybe you could use that example. Mm-hmm. Like, how does a car like that even get to market in the first place? And and how would the free market, as opposed to government, be able to address problems like that and, and stop all the uh, the death and destruction on the road? Well, first of all, you got to realize that back in the, the, the Yugo era, every car was a piece of junk by modern standards, and that goes for the high-end luxury stuff, too. If you uh, were to go back in time and, and pluck a brand-new Cadillac or an Oldsmobile or anything like that out of a showroom and, and bring, it to, uh, bring, it to a, uh, bring it today and, and compare it to the humblest economy car, the humblest Hyundai you could find, you would find that it's inferior in every respect. They were slapped together. The manufacturing techniques were inferior, and it had nothing to do with the government. It has to do with just improvements in manufacturing, uh, the, the, you know, the, the process of technology getting better over time. Uh, and these things would have happened regardless. I'm always amazed that uh, some people believe that absent government telling us we have to have safety, we wouldn't have it. Well, that's just not true. Volvo, for those who can remember, built an entire car company on safety. Uh, and they did it uh, starting back in the 1950s and into the 60s when they were the first car company to include seatbelts as standard in their cars. And they built their cars to a much higher standard in terms of their, their physical crashworthiness than other manufacturers. That's what they sold the cars on. They were stolid, boring, but they were very safe. But you had the alternative. If you wanted something that was less expensive, if you wanted something that was lighter, that got better gas mileage, that was cheaper, you could go out and buy a Volkswagen Beetle or a Datsun B210 or some other thing. The problem that these progressives have is that they want everybody to be driving Volvos, uh, everybody to be driving a car that's safe as they define it, which frankly is none of their business. You, know, you can make an argument, I think, for something like the, you know, the, the tailpipe emission standards up to a point, because in principle, at least, what comes out of the car's tailpipe does affect other people. And so that's a valid argument. But how is my safety as an adult human being anybody else's business if I wish to drive a car that might be a bit less crashworthy, let's say, if I pile into a tree. That's my business, ultimately, because I own myself. Nobody else owns me, and therefore nobody else has a right to dictate to me you know, how safe I have to be out in my car. Eric, in just a minute, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about how you approach shopping for a new car, as I am right now. But first, I need to take a minute out to help my listeners shop for an alternative to their health insurance. And guys, I have purchased my own health insurance for the last decade, and I saw firsthand how prices just skyrocketed after the implementation of Obamacare. Suddenly, I found myself with huge premiums, huge deductibles, and being told that I have to buy this specific insurance or I'm going to get fined. I realized right away that this was a scam and that I needed to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing. This is an amazing legal alternative to Obamacare that allows people to share medical expenses with people of similar values. For most people, health sharing is a much more affordable option, and it's a lot less taxing on your soul than that corporatist Obamacare health insurance. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have put together the ultimate package to help you manage your health care. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or giving my rep Jeff Cantor a call. 
He can be reached directly at 440-283-6849. Be sure to tell him Lions of Liberty sent you. Now, Eric, as we discussed uh, a little bit before the show, uh, I am currently in the market for a new vehicle. I've been out there shopping mm-hmm. around, doing some test driving. So uh, I'm curious, what what is your approach to shopping for a new vehicle, first of all? I mean, what what is the mm-hmm. best way to uh, to start this process? I mean, for me, I've just been kind of test driving and, and not putting too much pressure on myself. I don't need a new car tomorrow or anything like that. But obviously, once you walk into that dealer, uh, you can tell them you're not looking for to make a purchase tomorrow all you want, but they're trying to close within five minutes. So uh, how would you first start to approach this process? Well, first of all, uh, buying a new car <clears throat> generally is is not the best financial decision. Uh, you're almost always better off financially getting a used car just because of the fact of depreciation. Regardless of the car that you're looking at, uh, whether it's a blue chip car like a Toyota or something that's a bit less blue chip, uh, whatever you buy today will probably be worth 30 or 40 percent less than what you paid for it uh, after about four or five years, and that's substantial. And at the same time, the quality and durability of almost any modern car is so good that even with 50, 75,000 miles on it, it's effectively still barely broken in. So if you were to buy one, uh, that's a few years old and has the mileage on it, you can save yourself a very, very large sum of money. Now, that said, the big advantage to buying the new car is that you don't have to worry about the car, which you do with, when you buy a used car, meaning that it's a new car. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's brand new. And if there is something wrong with it, it's not going to be your problem. It will be covered under the warranty. You won't have to pay for it. So you can focus on the price of the car. Whereas with a used car, you always have to worry as, as much about the car itself uh, as you do about how much you're going to pay for it. So I think that's that's something very important to know. As far as saving money on a new car purchase, one thing that I always advise people is to never, ever, ever go shopping for an all-new model, meaning one that has just been redesigned or just been brought out to market, because the, you know, the market uh, is going to be driving the price of that up because it's popular and trendy, and you're probably going to pay not only sticker price, you're probably going to wind up paying more than sticker price. So your best bet is to wait a year or two until the hubbub has died down a little bit and there's inventory of those cars at the dealership. And at that point, you're in a more advantageous position to haggle and negotiate on the car. That's number one. The second thing you've already touched on is to never be in a hurry. People who wait until their old car suffers some kind of catastrophic failure, the transmission blows up, uh, something like that, and they just have to get a car. You know, they know, God, I have to get a car this weekend because I'm not going to have any way to get to work on Monday. Those people are in a very disadvantaged, uh, disadvantaged uh, bad position when they go in to, to discuss the car. And the salespeople can sense that, and they're going to get you. So don't be in a hurry. Uh, don't shop for the trendiest, newest cars. And have your financing lined up before you shop, too. That's something a lot of people don't take into consideration. Go to your bank, your credit union, Get all that stuff handled so that you don't get distracted by that when you're talking to the salesman. And lastly, uh, never discuss your trade if you, if you have one, if you're going to bring a trade in. Never discuss that until after you've closed on the price of the new car. And why is that? Well, because, again, it's an opportunity for confusion. What they typically will do is get you to focus on your trade-in, and they will give you what seems to be a very generous and may be a very generous offer on your trade, and you'll feel really good about that, uh, probably so good you won't notice that you just paid 
too much for the new car. That's how they make it up. So you might, there might be discounts that you could have already gotten through the negotiation process if you had not brought up the trade, but instead they'll just use that trade as sort of to factor in a discount that they might have given you anyway, but now you're also giving them your car. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. You know, a salesman, a car salesman, and I'm not disparaging them, but this is their living. This is what they do every single day. They do these transactions. Most of us only do these transactions once every few years, and we never really become expert at it. So you're at a disadvantage when you go in there. You know, you're 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 like an average guy in the street getting into a ring with a competitive boxer. You're probably going to lose. You know, you don't want to fight the guy directly. Uh, so it's really important to not try to do two things at once, meaning trying to worry about, okay, well, what am I going to get on my trade? And then how, am I going to, how much am I going to pay for the car? Do one thing at a time, finish the first thing, and then go on to the second thing. And when it comes to that haggling and negotiating, what other strategies would you suggest? I mean, would you suggest not even trying to talk about price when you first go in there, just look at cars and kind of walk off almost like a, a disinterested customer? I mean, that, that's sort of the tactic that I'm I'm taking right now because, I, like you said, I'm in that position where I don't need a new vehicle, so I have all the power because I can, I can also spend $0. So to me, I'm looking at everything through I have a paid-off car where I can spend 0 So I really need to be sold by the dealer in order for them to, yeah. to sell me on the car. Well, I recommend doing both. I think that everybody should go and physically look at the car and ideally take it for a test drive and, and also test drive uh, competitor vehicles and get a sense of the car so that you know what you want. But then go back home, get on the computer and do your research and find out what the car's sticker price is, find out what the dealer invoice price is, find out what the costs for the various options and trim packages and all of that are. Uh, and then add all that up and find yourself the, what, what that price is, and then add about 3%, which is a reasonable profit margin for the dealer to make off of the uh, invoice, not the sticker. Uh, and then email all the dealers in your geographic area and maybe even cast the net a little wider and just say, hey, I'm interested in buying a new Camry XE and you know, list the colors and all, and I'm willing to pay X. You know, are you willing to do business? And then leave it alone and see how many responses you get. That way you don't have to confront them in person. You know, a lot of these people will, will send you something back and say, well, you know, we can sell you the car for that. Come on down and see us. Uh, and then go down and see them. Pit them against each other. Um, you know, that, that is, that, that's market economics in action. And it's a great way to, to maximize your time and maximize your effort by just sitting at your computer and sending out emails. Sure. And you're, I guess you're maybe a little less likely to be influenced by their effective sales tactics that they've developed over the years and years. If you're not sitting there in front of them, if you're just sitting behind your computer, you have a little more resistance. Of course, because you're not being swayed emotionally. You're not being pressured. You know, we're human beings and we all want to, you know, be friendly and, you, you know, you don't want to be confrontational. And it's very, very difficult to manage that for most people when you're in that setting in a dealer and you're, you're sitting in front of somebody or standing there talking to somebody you know, you don't want nice to get the guy, guy mad. Told you how they have three kids and, uh, you know, maybe sure. make some more money for their Christmas presents. You know, there, there could be a little bit of a sob story in there, too. Of course. The thing is just to be reasonable about it. You know, a lot of people uh, make the mistake of being unreasonable and think that they should get a car uh, for less than the dealer, uh, you know, spent to get the thing from the manufacturer. They don't they may not realize that, that a dealer is essentially a franchise like McDonald's. Uh, the, the dealer pays the manufacturer. Like for example, you go to a Ford dealer. That Ford dealer has paid Ford Motor Company to represent Ford vehicles. He buys the cars from Ford uh, on loan. He takes out loans to buy the inventory, and then he has to sell the cars. The cars are actually his. They don't belong anymore to Ford. You know, and he's got floor costs, and he's got interest costs, and all of those things. And he's got a right to make money. The question is how much. And 
uh, generally the rule is about 3%, unless it's a very popular uh, high-demand uh, model. And, of course, in that case, all bets are off. They'll make as much money as they can. But it's not reasonable to come in there with an offer that is below invoice, in effect, demanding that they, they sell you a car at a net loss or without any profit. You know, they, they are, They're entitled to make a living just like anybody else. Is that invoice price, that dealer invoice price you mentioned, is that something readily available? Because obviously they're not going to put that on oh, the yeah. sticker where they have the MSRP and all that stuff. But how can, how can someone find out exactly what those invoice prices are? These days it's incredibly easy. It used to be that you'd have to um, subscribe to something like a Consumer Reports would publish it. Now you can just go online and get it almost anywhere, literally Google it. Uh, you know, Select your make and model and then uh, you know, type in dealer invoice price and multiple uh, search engine uh, results will come up and, and tell you what that is. It's readily available. The window sticker technically is the MSRP and that acronym stands for Manufacturer's Suggested Retail Price. Emphasis on suggested. So you know, that, that includes all the markup. Uh, that includes you know, you know, what they hope to make. Uh, it does not necessarily at all reflect what the cost of the vehicle was to the dealer. The invoice price uh, reflects that. In fact, it's also it's, it's padded a little bit because each dealer also gets uh, incentives from the manufacturer that aren't public, that, that you, know, you don't know about. So even if you were to buy the car at, say, 1% over invoice, the dealer is still making, he's still making money. So essentially, this is a, a battle for the dealer to get as much above that invoice price as possible uh, versus the consumer who's trying to get as close to that invoice price sure. as possible. Sure. And I mean, the upside, I, you know, some people don't like haggling. I, you know, I understand that. It's it's not a pleasant thing. But the upside is you really can get a great deal. You well, know, that it, was the it's idea one behind the, the Saturn, wasn't it, that you don't haggle, you just come on in, you buy them, and, well, where are the Saturn? Where's the Saturn now? It seems well, like... Well, and it didn't work. Right. It because, like you know, basically, really it was like, basically, no haggle was, okay, come in and pay pay full price. <laughs> that new haggle. I mean, it was a polite way of saying you come in and pay what we tell you to pay. Right, and we also see that now with these some of these services like TrueCar and things like that. Do you, do yeah. you know anything about those? Do you think that those generally offer good deals, or is it better to do your method, the um, the, the shopping around, emailing, and, and things like that? Or can TrueCar actually save you time to get to a, sort of a similar place? You know, I haven't I have not um, done my due diligence on TrueCar, so I can't say anything pro or con about them. I think that. If you take a little bit of time as a consumer, as a buyer, uh, to research and, uh, and, and, and use some of the methods that you and I have just talked about, uh, you'll generally do well. You know, you, you're not going to get ripped off, and I think that's the most important thing. You'll probably walk away with a, with a pretty good deal, and you'll be happy with the car that you got. One more thing I want to ask you about. I, I'm out here in California, so obviously there's there's a, a little bit of a different perspective on things from a lot of my fellow man, especially when it comes to politics. But the mm-hmm. politics seeps into a lot of other areas, and cars is one of them mm-hmm. because out here it seems like um almost like a um a virtue signal to drive a hybrid or an electric vehicle. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I like the idea of saving money on gas, but uh, you know there's a lot of factors there. So I mean, do you think that there is you know a certain value in in an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle, or is this something that is more sort of a a feel-good thing for a lot of people. Well, with electric cars, uh, no, you can't make any valid economic argument, in my opinion, for uh, an electric car. The, the very least expensive of them, I think, is the Nissan Leaf, and that one sells for about $30,000. That is a lot of money to spend on a car. Uh, gas is about 2 bucks a gallon right now. You can get yourself a nicely equipped, brand-new Toyota Corolla for about 16000 bucks. So how much gas could you buy for $16,000, $15,000, which would be the difference between what you pay for a Corolla versus a Nissan Leaf? Gotcha, gotcha. You're never going to come out ahead. I, you know, that's the economic thing. The other thing is, uh, functionally, the Nissan Leaf and all of the electric cars have significant functional liabilities. 
most of them have very limited ranges relative to uh, a conventional car, and that's a big problem. But an even bigger problem is they're refueling, really they're recharging times, which best case scenario, if you have access to what they call um, a fast charger, which is a high voltage charger, very best case scenario is 30 to 45 minutes to put 80% charge back in the batteries. Now, uh, contrast that with the less than five minutes it takes to refuel a standard car. We live in a fast food culture. You tell me how many people are going to willingly put up with a car that best case scenario takes 30 to 45 minutes to uh, regain 80% of its, of, its, of its driving range. Yeah, I mean, it might be one thing if you can just park your car at home for that charging, but not everybody's going to have that yeah. ability at their house. So usually you have to go find a, a charging station somewhere, which they, they are, at least in California, there's a good number yeah. of them, but you still got to go seek them out and take that time out of your day, which is, you know, extremely valuable, especially like you said, in today's culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a huge problem. You know, it's one thing when you have a handful of these things in circulation, as is the case right now, and you've kind of got these cute little uh, depots, you know, in, in, in urban cores where there's a, you know, you can see them lined up. There's six little recharging slots. Well, what happens if there are large numbers of these electric cars out there? Think about a busy gas station and people lined up to get gas at a busy gas station. And there's throughput there at least because each car takes less than five minutes to fuel up and move on its way. But imagine the, the queues that would form uh, at, these charging, uh, at these charging outlets where each car has to wait 30, 30 to 45 minutes to juice up. That does not, not sound like a fun time at all to me. <laughs> no, and, and another thing that's not mentioned often uh, in the coverage of these cars, uh, they are greatly affected by changes in temperature uh, and also the use of accessories. For example, uh, if you use the heater in an electric car, well, there's no internal combustion engine, which ordinarily provides the heat in a car. In an electric car, it's provided by electricity. The headlights also, every accessory, the air conditioning, all of it is powered by electricity and uh, the batteries themselves, the performance is affected by changes in temperature, temperature differentials. Just like a regular car, it's harder to start it in the winter. Well, the same thing, that the electricity uh, becomes more of a, it becomes drawn down more when it's cold outside or when it's hot. So these optimistic best case ranges uh, all assume optimum conditions, uh, whereas a standard car is much less affected by all of those things. Now, Eric, when I uh, first started shopping for a new car, one of the first things I did was head over to epautos.com. This is not a joke. It's not a fake plug. It's literally what I did because I've been reading your site for a few <laughs> years now. Uh, so and I started searching some of the vehicles that I uh, was looking to test drive and read your reviews. And you review a tremendous number of vehicles over at epautos.com. So why don't you just take a minute now to just plug your website, let everybody know what you're doing over there. Like I said earlier, it's not just auto reviews and, and, and thoughts about cars. You also intermingle a lot of, of your political thoughts and, and that kind of thing. So why don't you give people the full layout of everything you're doing over there at epautos.com. Oh, sure. We've got, you know, we've got the, the new car reviews, which uh, are based on my road tests and evaluations of the vehicle. And I try to put them in context relative to competitor vehicles uh, and give a real world description of how they perform and how they operate and what their pros and their cons are. And also, uh, I, I incorporate articles about uh, how the regulatory state and, and political considerations have been affecting car design and how that affects your pocketbook, uh, what you have to pay as a result of that. Uh, we've also got articles about motorcycles, antique vehicles, car maintenance, pretty much anything under the sun that you can think of uh, that has to do with cars or getting around. You'll, 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 you should be able to find it there. Great. Well, Eric Peters, I thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, before I let you go, is there, you want to just put out uh, how people can get in touch with you, how they can reach out and contact you, uh, any social media contacts you might have, feel free to give them the whole Eric Peters communication roundup. 
Oh, sure. On the site, you know, there are, there are places where people can post questions or they can email me directly. My email is not a secret. It's epeters952 at yahoo.com. And I'm on Twitter at libertariancarg. They wouldn't give me guy, so I got libertariancarg. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's me. Yeah. But I'm pretty easy to find if anybody would like to reach me. All right, well, Eric Peters, I thank you so much once again for coming on the program today. Like I said, I do love your website. Uh, it's really my number one source when I'm looking for information about cars, so I highly recommend my listeners to go ahead and check it out. Keep up the great work, Eric. Keep on roaring. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. All righty, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Eric Peters of epautos.com. Com. Even if you don't care about libertarian politics, which I don't really know why you're listening to this program if you don't, uh, epautos.com and Eric Peters is a great source for just researching vehicles. He test drives so many cars, has great detailed breakdowns of his experiences in each one, and I think they are his reviews are very unique when compared with a lot of the reviews you will get on a, on a lot of the generic car websites and that kind of thing. So I, I want to really highly recommend checking out epautos.com once again for any sort of car research that you're into, as well as for Eric's thoughts on politics. You can find it all over there at epautos.com. We will, of course, link to that in the show notes for today's program, which can be located at lionsofliberty.com slash 272. And maybe I was a little greedy here because I'm shopping for a new car. So I kind of just wanted to get some tips from Eric. So I figured if I'm going to do that, I may as well record it and make a show out of it for you guys. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation, especially getting into a lot of the ways that the government has influenced the current cars that we see on the market. And folks, if you enjoy this program, one way that you can help us kind of tick our way up in the podcasting world is to do a few things. You can head over to iTunes, especially iTunes, even if you don't listen to the program through there, and leave us a five-star rating and a great review. That is a very easy, simple way that you can help us promote the show and get it in front of more people. Those ratings and reviews are a huge part of how iTunes chooses to promote shows, advance them through their rankings. So that is the number one way you can help us. The other way, of course, is just sharing it with your friends and family. Share our episodes from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Liberty. You can retweet all our stuff from Twitter at Lions of Liberty or just email the show to a friend or family and say, hey, I don't know if you're interested in politics, but I know you're interested in cars, so you might find this episode pretty interesting. There's so many different ways you can approach the ideas of liberty and get people first thinking about them. And everybody's got an interest in cars in some level, If whether they're a classic car enthusiast like my father is or whether they're just someone who needs to get to work every day. Just about everybody out there can use some car buying tips now and again. So a great episode to share with people. Another great episode to share with people is our Liberty Draft. Anyone in the Liberty Movement is going to have interest in this program. It was back in episode number 269 just a couple weeks ago. That was part one where we did our first seven rounds of drafting our own Liberty Propaganda teams with our eyes set on the 2020 election cycle. Well, guess what? Part two is coming up this Wednesday. That's right. We're going to do three supplemental rounds. We might even have some trades. Who knows? And then we're going to make our teams and put our players, so to speak, into different Liberty positions and debate them. And then we will find a way for you guys to contribute your thoughts and grade our teams. So look forward to that, the Liberty Draft. And if you checked out that last show, I encourage you, we want to get this thing trending. We want to blow this thing up. So... Use the hashtag, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, use the hashtag Liberty Draft when talking about the show. You can tweet about who your favorite picks were, who you think fell too far, who you think should have been drafted that wasn't. 
But just be sure to use that hashtag, Liberty Draft, and help us get this thing trending. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.